Hello, and welcome to the Nostalgia Podcast. A podcast where we discuss the retelling or continuation of pop culture favorites as seen through a queer and feminist lens. My name is Eric Lefebvre. And my name is Jessica Tercero. And this week, we are joined by a very special guest, Mr. Eric Best. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, you guys. I'm just really excited to talk about, you know, these two movies. These two movies. <laughs> what movies are we doing this week? Should we yell? In like yeah, are you guys seconds? ready? <laughs> Three, two, Three, one. Two, one. We're doing Dune. So once again, on the pulse of pop culture, um, iconically, and, uh, you know, we're so good. (laughs) So we're doing Dune, (laughs) the remake, and then the original uh, 84 David Lynch Dune. So we're going to talk about a lot. I know it's a heavy subject that I am brand new to. I have no history with this. Um, Eric, what is your history with Dune? So I have been just aware of dune since i was like a teenager it's just one of those things i think kind of weirdly has permeated culture not because it was a huge like franchise because obviously the david lynch film is like this weird cult movie Mm -hmm. but i think it's one of those things that like has like through it has this really underrated thing about it because it had to it never really got its uh moment in the sun i guess um yeah so i just thought i was unaware of it and then i did see the david lynch film probably in like college and then didn't think about it for several years (laughs) (laughs) and and then suddenly i um knowing that the movie was coming out i did read the book uh, just this past year um and and the sequel as well and just got pumped for the movie and now I have rewatched both movies. I've seen both twice now. Yeah. And I just love Dune. I don't know. It's so good. Yeah. I, um, growing up as a kid, um, my grandmother, who was like weirdly religious, also was like only had, like, I had one grandma that had like TBN, like Christian channel on all the time. This grandma was also religious, but had sci fi channel on all the time, which was incredible. So it was like, I remember watching Dune as a kid and thinking it was like so fucking cool and then I didn't watch it at all and I like it was in the general like you know uh in my brain forever but I didn't even think about it until I took a sci-fi class for college a sci-fi literature and for some reason we watched Dune instead of reading it and um having a lot of the context for for like just sci-fi in general like a lot of the motifs a lot of the the themes that like permeate sci-fi like the power of liminal space and sleeper awaken right which is like literally said verbatim in this uh in this movie <laughs> it was a whole different experience watching it <laughs> yeah. um and also watching it as an adult too so like I could not be more excited to talk about this because I, I wrote a whole fucking paper on this movie and like See, I've read like people do like their master theses for their like doctorates on Dune because of like the roles of women and the roles of men. And then like, you know, uh, the blending of the two with like, you know, this iteration, uh, the first iteration of like uh, Paul and Muad'Dib and all this. And I'm just like, I have a lot to say and I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm pumped. Um, should I feel like they're both very dense. So should we just jump in? Yeah, I feel like it's absolutely. just a great place. Cool. Let's, Let's do jump it. In. Okay. 
In the year 10,191, the current emperor of the Imperium hatches a plan to get rid of the House Atreides, who he believes is a threat to his throne, by allowing them to take over spice production from the Harkonnens on the planet Arrakis. When the Atreides arrive, they are faced with a number of challenges the Harkonnens left for them, including failing equipment and assassins. Luckily, the heir to House Atreides has been training in both physical and verbal combat thanks to his many trainers and his mother, Lady Jessica. In the middle of the night, the gross boy Harkonnens come back to commit genocide with the help of the Duke's doctor, as was agreed by the Emperor, and take back Arrakis for themselves. Paul and his mother Jessica are able to escape using the voice, which is the Bene Gesserit's literal unstoppable power of suggestion, and desperately try to find the indigenous peoples on the planet called the Freeman. A plane crash, terrifying desert, and giant sandworm chase later, Paul and his mother are embraced by the local Fremen, including the mysterious girl from his dreams, Chani. Paul is quickly heralded as the new messiah thanks to local lore and legend and is tasked with teaching the Fremen the weirding way. Paul, or rather Muad'Dib, is sent through quite the set of tribulations. He survives the ingestion of the water of life, he conquers and rides the sandworm, and even becomes an older brother to a newborn Aaliyah. In a final battle some years later, the Fremen rise and destroy the lording Harkonnens, and Muad'Dib is declared Kwisatz Haderach, a.k.a. the messiah, officially. Um, <laughs> so I feel like, uh, as someone who knows nothing about this, um, a lot of new information for me, um, lot of lore as is with any good sci-fi, a lot of, uh, verbiage, but overall kind of a cool story. Yeah. Yeah, totally. cool. we, we're done we can just wrap it up <laughs> okay. right there that's perfect honestly I sure if we, you were we, like setting up I, for something to be like no. Bum, bum. no honestly i think we covered all of our bases that thank you oh, are you ready for the next um, one oh, okay we yeah. love that perfect <laughs> um yeah it's uh it is i feel so truthfully and honestly it's my first ever david lynch film oh, i have really? not seen wow. literally anything else of his and it's one of those like catalogs obviously because he has such such uh, a history like while well, dry blue velvet twin peaks obviously like it's humongous i've never seen any one of them including but twin peaks and this, this is, is my the... first dip into anything that is lynch well this is the one that he like doesn't even claim he's like whatever this doesn't even right? this isn't right. even my yeah. movie it was whatever and i mean a lot of it is because he took this over from another failed project right which you watched a documentary yeah. on Yes. So the uh, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, which is uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky's, uh, this filmmaker who did the Holy Mountain. This was like his passion project, his life project. He spent like years and years trying to make it. I think he got he got like H.R. Giger and Dan O'Bannon and like a bunch of these other big sci-fi people. And it's a movie that never was, but it was a really cool documentary. It has nothing to do with like this, but the main, pro- the first project was his, and then this became uh, David Lynch's. I think like probably twelve years later, because it was in it was before Star. It was a couple years before Star Wars that mm-hmm. um, that one was supposed to happen, and then it just never did. Which is wild because I feel like in my head canon, like this came before Star Wars, and I mean because like technically it kind of did it just wasn't released to audiences before then but like when i think of you know like star wars obviously like you know a big space epic but like this feels like something that laid the groundwork for that even though it didn't it came technically after you know because like oh yeah um, 
there's just so much happening and it's so rich with um with so many great characters and like great like these like different factions and different houses like I'm so intrigued by like the Bene Gesserit right who like literally use telepathy to like they are controlling the entire world through the shadows right controlling the men and like in doing so like it's it's not even like feminist it's because they're also like policing themselves and telling like the woman has the power to choose what gender her baby is going to be when it's in the womb she's like nope this is what i'm going to do right now like and they tell that like they're they're breeding humans to try to be the superhuman the quizach uh hetera the oh my god i'm so bad at saying it uh quizats hotterock like i would say yeah yes. quizats hotterock yeah <laughs> No, and it's such a so weird <laughs> it is a little bit of a mouthful well um yeah and i mean they pull from i mean there's a lot of kind of made-up words but it is like a lot of like seemingly arabic words too that yeah which we will probably talk about but i just yeah. feel like the movie in general like it's so crazy that this was made in two two fairly large budget movies because like we were saying it's just it's so big <laughs> there's so much lore the book is just packed with information and the fact that David Lynch got it all into one movie which we'll obviously talk about too because the you know this new movie uh is two movies <laughs> It's two parts. Um, but two huge long movies. Two <laughs> long movies that yes. still don't even begin to explain some of the basic things about the world. Yeah. But it's such a just complex thing. And I mean, and this David Lynch film, like we can talk about it. It's, I mean, it looks good. It is, yeah. it has its like charm and it has its moments where it's, it's a little strange, but we are questioning the budget, but the, <laughs> just the, the beginning, the beginning scenes look so good for the it time. So fantastical. Like immediately, like I was taken out of where, wherever I am in the world and I'm just like, oh no, you are somewhere else. Like, and it's, it's just weird enough and it's just familiar enough. And it's like, it feels timeless, even though it's like kind of it's way far into the future right because like um they don't have computers right because like ai is a thing um and they don't even talk about this in the in the movies but like ai rose up and tried to like kill everybody is that right and then they like got rid of ai and computers aren't allowed at all it's truly something that they don't like talk about and the book can be so selective about talking about like the technological limitations <laughs> of everything like the still suits and stuff but um yeah, I was, I, it was just like, not a phone in sight, just people vibing, just in the <laughs> desert. <laughs> and, and to be fair, like, I feel like this movie was, and, and rightfully so, moments of exposition dumping, which are needed for such a big lore, but to the point of where, like, even in the inaugural, like, screen crawl of information dumping right off the bat, she disappears. She's like, here's all the information you need. She fades out and she's like, oh, and one more thing. I forgot yes. some stuff because there's more stuff to be said now. Yeah. And the now the movie. Queen, like, the exposition queen. queen of Princess <laughs> yeah. Irulan. Yes. We love her. And it was, it was such a funny like, oh, okay. I feel like I know what I'm getting into with this because it's it's very, I felt like that was like it's very a nice camp. little comedic. It was a mm -hmm. kind of comedic beat that was like, felt like a really nice starting point of like, this is a lot. Also, the fashion <laughs> and the hair, like yeah. fucking incredible. This whole movie yeah. just like, 
I feel like this movie definitely did it better than the next one. The next one is not very, um, I love the next one too, but this one was just more pleasing to look at in a lot of ways. They suspiria'd it. Yes, they did. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. But not not to say, because like, I mean, I loved the new one. I do too. Yes, from a color perspective, like when we when we're in like the Harkonnen lair and like everything's green and their hair is red and it's like black and white checker and like smoke and it's just like this weird like cartoonish cavalcade of just mess and you're like where are we? And then and it's fun and it's gorgeous and cool, but it also does feel like the most cartoonish sci-fi um, mm-hmm. possible. Actually, this is a good place to start because. I want to talk about the Baron a little bit, and this one specifically, um, because of the very clear and fun uh, villainy queer coding trope that we love, but also the the toxic, um, predatory, pedophile, disgusting queer or gay male like and incestuous be afraid in, and incestuous mm-hmm. queer male thing that they were doing to make him more monstrous um what's that about <laughs> well, and like literally making him like not only like grotesque in like you know mor- morality wise right like yeah. this movie is very cartoony so it's like the good guys are very good and the bad guys are obviously yeah. very bad but like what can we do to make him better so they were doing those things but like literally even like with the repulsiveness of his physical appearance with his like Dr. Pipple Popper next to him, like just constantly working on him. And then like literally like the heart plug thing where like he like rips out their heart and like or, or like, you know, bleeds them dry and stuff like all of that was in, and like not even hiding the fact that like he's pining and like drooling over uh, Sting fade. Fade, oh, but like yeah. it's sting, right? It's sting. Um, He's like, oh my god, my son is so hot. Mm. It's his nephew, but yeah. Oh, nephew. Sorry. Yeah, he's, yeah, but he's my definitely. So- there's very weird sexual tension between them, and of course, the his like sting's leather suit is just, you know, and his extremely thong. tight. And yes. he's he he looks like the most like normal almost of of all the Harkonnens, and he's just like obviously meant to look handsome we'll, yeah. we'll say <laughs> especially compared to his uncle um but yeah it's it's a very strange stereotype of like a depraved homosexual character or something yeah. someone who is like you know and it's you know they pull it from the book it's not like this movie's inventing this thing it, mm-hmm. the character does have that in the books and everything and and the heart plugs that which are not in the book are at least as far as i remember are very strange too i got like a very Peter Thiel vibes. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't know, people joke that he like, whatever. But <laughs> it, it's it's a very weird because that scene, that whole scene, it's like, how do we portray him having sex with this child without having sex with the child? Okay, it's like, how about he bathes in his heart blood? You're like, what? Mm-hmm. Like this is and so like, strange. Has an orgasm while doing it. Yeah. And then it's just like he looks like over at Sting. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just like such a strange, and I understand for the sake of like menacing visuals of like i don't know what's happening i don't know what i'm looking at why is this happening what is the point of this like it's supposed to be intentionally like confusing and a little bit scary but it's all at the expense of like that obnoxious and toxic perpetuative trope of the predatory homosexual which is that whole thing and i guess for the time 
it's all it's not it's also not like the new movie is doing this and we're like critiquing like wow in 2021 i can't but it's like not that time forgives anything but there is at least some contextual based expectation in knowing that this movie is like 36 years old or like Mm -hmm. 30 years old almost right yeah yeah and it would be different if there were different expressions of like of gay relationships or anything queer at all yeah the movie is really based in a very patriarchal very gender-based society i mean even the most powerful and most empowered women who have the most agency i mean we can talk about jessica or something like that after this but like they don't even like she doesn't even get to be queen she's not even queen she's the the duke's sort of uh concubine concubine and yeah so she's literally the most powerful like person in the book until like you know paul becomes the queen's hotterock and she's the concubine and I just think she, it's, a, it's a very patriarchal society. She can, she's literally stronger than him in every way, and she can make anybody do anything she needs them to. She can literally control the world, and still, she's just the sex friend or like the concubine, exactly. Like or, she's yeah. essentially and even with, nobody. Like, even with like uh, going back to the Harkonnens, right? Like the scientist guy, right? Like he has rape fantasies about her, about controlling her, right? Oh yeah. And, like because also in the Harkonnens we don't see any women there because of this you know uh, queer coding of them but also like you know even the straight ones that are within that house like feel like they just dominate and dispose of women because I I think we maybe see one who has a heart plug but like other than that we don't see any whenever we see the Harkonnens um but yeah like the uh the Bene Gesserit like I I was saying like they even though they're so powerful, I love that the movie, uh, both movies do this, where they have power, but they do not, they are not feminists, clearly. And that is clearly distinguished, where, like, a lot of the times we, you know, like, oh, woman, girl, boss, fucking get it, go, go, go. But, like, you see them as villains, because even though they are all powerful, and even though they, you know, literally can make anybody do anything with this fucking terrifying voice that they have, right? <laughs> like, this this commanding voice, like, it's they can so tell metal. you to kill yourself, and, like, you're, you're gonna fucking do it. Yeah. Why haven't they fucking... Un- overthrown the emperor why don't they just like why is this plan of theirs taking like millennia because literally they could just get that shit done today but like jessica is the one that that rebels against that right like she gets um the mother bene Gesserit, um what's her name the reverend mother the... we call her but she has a helen Muhayam or whatever she has uh, a very Mah- complicated ni- name <laughs> yeah reverend mother Muhayam, i think is like Okay. how she's referred to yeah. yeah she um so jessica was her best student right and um yeah. she literally goes to her and like is like talking down to her saying you think you could make the the chosen one come how fucking dare you she's like yelling at her when um i mean literally jessica did she was like i'm over this i'm just gonna fucking do it and yeah he he has the voice and yeah he can do this it's fine like so i love that I love Jessica as a character breaking out of that faux feminist, faux feminism kind of like lifestyle that the Bene Gesserit kind of like embody where it's just they're controlling the world through men. They never allow themselves to have that control openly and they are content just being concubines and, you know, having uh, having babies. They literally the Bene Gesserit are women that just have babies 
the and to bring forth the male that is going to save the whole fucking world and that's bullshit <laughs> that's not yeah. feminism at all and and i just love that we never see them as good guys and we never see them as that because they just put each other down at every at literally every spot and there's like this place that like they're afraid to look as women like you know in, in knowledge they can't um they can't look or they'll go crazy or they um in order to pass knowledge on to another they have to surrender their life and um so many of of their traditions that to me seem very patriarchal in their roots even though they're posing as a matriarch uh, matriarchal like society so just that internalized patriarchy is just so on point and so nuanced and so deep that um i can't wait to read the books and get into this because like i can you could just probably talk about this forever well and jessica in the lynch movie so she i just noticed how kind of almost high femme she is honestly in, in the in the movie she has this really i mean she does they do really make her look like a royal. I mean, she is, she has this, you know, large ginger updo most of the time. Gorgeous. Um, and meanwhile, Reverend Mother, famous bald queen, love bald, <laughs> bald <laughs> queen. We love, love a headdress moment. We love a we love a sit back. Yeah, I love the Reverend Mother in the first scene. She's just has that. <laughs> she's just amazing. I mean, and it's just it adds to the witchiness too. Just her whole goth like drag yeah, get up yes. almost but oh yeah but jessica i mean she is very femme i think in it she has the she obviously has like a lot of you know gowns and everything later in the book when she's or in the movie when she's with paul in the desert she's almost wearing like a nighty dress i feel like half the time and it, i just mm-hmm. it, it makes her almost look so much more feminine but at the same time, she's this Ben and Jesuit warrior queen almost. She like up and coming, like a princess, like type mm-hmm. of role where she is extremely powerful mentally. She's been training her entire life to serve the Ben and Jesuit, to maybe perhaps become Reverend Mother. She's so powerful and so feminine at the same time. I do feel like they play her up almost kind of damsel-esque in the in the Lynch film. Yeah. Um, where she's with Paul, who becomes stronger and stronger and stronger. And, you know, they play up his abilities. You know, we can talk about this, but like when they meet the Fremen, for example, like Jessica is the one who fights Stilgar, who kind of like, you know, dis- disarms him. And that's like stops them from killing them basically. like immediately yeah. like, <laughs> like immediately. without thinking about it she's just fucking in it and even getting out of the plane right like the second that her gag is off she's just like fucking kill yourself done go like yeah. move on we're done <laughs> yeah. here like yeah she's you're right she is so incredibly powerful whereas like the reverend mothers and the rest of the Bene Gesserit that we see who kind of like hide their feminists under their big giant headdresses and like under the this black shapeless clothing she kind of like embraces it which is really cool and I think that that kind of imagery works really well with um with her character just defying openly defying you know their wishes and what they want in order to do what she wants and what she feels is good and you know and I love that the Messiah wasn't born unto like the Bene Gesserit plan, but instead was born out of rebel, like true rebellion from that plan. You know what I mean? Right. And the, the Bene Gesserit are people who kind of work all behind the scenes and sort mm-hmm. of are people who are like 
laying the groundwork for, for a Quisatadarak to come to, for, you know, someone to sort of attain this ability, but it's almost like, you know, building the plane as you're flying it. They're kind of trying to get this word out and then like, you know, there's all this, <laughs> people believe this person's going to exist, but, you know, this person doesn't exist yet. So I think there's how, that's where kind of this religion sort of pops up with the Fremen, but um, the people who have power, they just work they just have a very like feminized type power where mm-hmm. they're kind of working within their networks and they're girl bossing. <laughs> <laughs> they're well, gatekeeping. I... They're girl bossing. <laughs> they are gaslighting. <laughs> they are lighting the path with the gas. You're going to have a um, boy. You're going to have a girl. You're allowed yeah, to do this. We've... You're not allowed to do that. Like, I'm sorry. Um, queen, who do you think you are? <laughs> so, I am the Reverend mother. I know that this is going to be very confusing for the listener, but Eric my partner Eric was talking to me, Eric, not Eric Best on the podcast, about, <laughs> um, I don't know if this is true, maybe you can enlighten us, just in terms of like the lore of the way, apparently the spreading of the information to the Fremen and to several other worlds of the culture of um, the house of, what is their name? Atreides. Atreides. Atreides, the house of Atreides. Um, spreading their culture and their sort of like ways of existing to all of these other planets as contingency plans to if ever they're in some kind of a a bind it'll make it look like they're meant to be there or they have like authority or power over so this idea of like paul being the messiah is arguably just a contingency plan or like it was intentionally planted like these ideas of like oh he's coming back he's coming back he's coming back was sort of like a governmental or a government regulated strategy to make sure that the family was safe when they were on the planet. Right? But that's in the second one, right? Because like yeah. that doesn't happen at all in the Lynch that film. That doesn't happen. Okay. No, no it doesn't cause... happen in this Lynch film. But that in happens. The... We find that out in the book later. Yes. We, we find it out. Yeah, it's true. It's, I mean, it is it's something true. that okay. happens. It's true in this, more in the, in the new movie. Jess, you're totally right. Where it is, the Ben and Jesuit are people who, you know, they're laying... They're kind of everywhere. They have okay. it's, they have this network that, you know, they're like spies almost, but like operate okay. out in the open. And they're in all of the royal houses and everything throughout the the houses. Okay. And they yeah, so there's sort of like this myth making that happens. And you know, it's like who even knows what the Quetzal Tadarak is? And like how if you're just thinking logically, I'm like we just came up with this like messiah and no one's been <laughs> it before like how yeah. do we know who it is and like clearly people you know if they had dune phones like sand phones they'd be like texting about <laughs> it talking about it yeah posting about it yeah there's memes about it oh yeah. yeah and there's literally just like three or four like traits that they know and they're just looking out for that constantly basically yeah. and paul paul checks all the boxes basically right away and yeah, it's obviously more in the second movie, but he, I think it's one of those things that, you know, Paul doesn't know that he's the Quetzalcoatl, but he begins to believe we go on that journey with him. And, and I think it's still true in the Lynch film where we, we go on this journey where he's supposed to be 15. He doesn't look 15 in the Lynch film. He, <laughs> he <laughs> looks 35. <laughs> like, yeah. But uh, he, you know, goes on this, journey and you know time works very strangely in the movies too where we don't know how much time has passed really um Mm -hmm. but you know he he goes on this huge journey and i think as you know as he goes through he begins to realize 
and build confidence in that he is yeah. this Messiah, but which is an interesting conversation. That, oh yeah, no, you. Oh, won't. he he has his mother right there next to him, who has literally given him like the foundations of what he needs to who's literally given him life and given him all of the knowledge that she has and taught him how to use like her skills and like okay i'm sorry we don't get very many like jessicas that are like all powerful and fucking badass so i'm just like yes 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 jessica yeah um but like she has this daughter who's like all like again she breaks another tradition where she's pregnant and she drinks the water of life right which is iconic we love and then that baby is born all-knowing and all-powerful because again jessica broke the norm and broke with um the bene Gesserit and just did what she fucking had to do and seeing her stand tall at the end of this movie like this is all because of me my children did this because like oh, yeah just so she's amazing, of, like, amazing. Rebellion. <laughs> there uh I'll, is it alia or alia 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 is so fucking cool. She's like she's so the cool. sickest character. She just shows up and she's like a a literal child, younger than a child even, baby possibly. And she just like walks <laughs> into the place and she's like, "You should be afraid of me." And they're like, "Who is this girl?" And she's like, "My brother's coming." And then she like does the controlling voice. They're like, "On oh, the shit. Reverend Mother." And then they're like, "Oh fuck, oh fuck!" It's, just, it's so cool because she looks so fucking sick in that like headpiece, and she's just like, "She's my she's, brother." I could not, again, knowing nothing about this, I had no idea that a child comes into play, anything like that. And to be fair, this is wild. I did watch the new one first, and then I watched the Lynch. So it was like a weird thing. So I got the first half, which I was excited about because I was like, oh, well, if it's a half, then I can go back and watch the same half and the rest of the story. So I had no idea that she comes into play at all. So when she did, and she's awesome, I'm like, oh. Well, she's perfect. We must save her at all costs. I mean, obviously she's going to control the world. So there's no like issue there. But um, she was just like such a nice little surprise. Yeah. yeah, And that's when the movie just goes full bonkers. Oh, yeah. There's moments of it like you're leading up to it. But then that's when I think David Lynch as the visionary behind this one. It has he really. as far as the tone goes like the tone of dune is all over the place in this movie oh yeah there's like these regal scenes we open with princess Irulan and then going into you know this palace of the emperor and then by the end when you're back kind of at this place of kind of you know with the emperor and everyone around it couldn't be more of a different tone i mean everyone is running around the emperor himself is like on like the battle systems the shooting stuff i'm like they have people for this you don't have to do yeah. that <laughs> yeah like there's i mean every all the characters from the beginning are back and then there's just this child and the pug the pug and the pug, is alive. And the pug. The pug. thank you for bringing the that pug. thank you for bringing up the pug because i Praise did be because patrick stewart <laughs> is like pug. taking care of oh my god throughout the entire movie and then the pug shows up at least five or six times yeah which is also just, one of yeah. those moments of time lapse where you're like wait what <laughs> where he, he sees him like on the field and he's like hey it's you and he's like hey it's you and you're like but he's got like this like mullet what? happening yeah like, like this bald obvious, mullet. obvious years have passed like so much has changed and suddenly it's like, I've missed you. And it's like, you guys saw each other 20 minutes ago. I'm like, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> what do you mean? But I've, it's, that I feel like there's, that last half, like you said, is very bonkers. It goes yeah. all over. And then suddenly it kind of just like, 
it's that showdown in the main hall with Sting. Uh, it's a very quick death, very fast. Mm-hmm. Like the fight is not long, and then suddenly uh, Alia's like, "He's the Quizaz Hatterack, <laughs> uh, hooray!" And they're like, "Hooray!" And credits, and you're like, "Oh!" And it rains. Can't forget that it rains. Oh, and it rains for the first time. Yes. Um, come back with the Messiah biblical business. Um, big Noah vibes. We're coming mm-hmm. right in there with a, a fresh rainfall. I yeah, this I was. Movie, I, like, it was such a weird end. Like it was just a lot at the end. It the got first, wild. The first like hour and forty five minutes. Like it. It seems like paced pretty okay, right? Like it's. Yeah. We are learning a lot about. You know, we have a lot to learn about all of these different houses, about all of these different things. We learn a lot about House of Trades while learning nothing about House of Trades. Um, you know, we don't really know anything about uh, Gurney, who's Picard's character. Not a lot about Duncan. We get a little bit about Daddy, where he's like talking about like you know how we need to change and you know so he's kind of like setting the tone of what's going to happen with the rest of the movie right literally with sleepers awaken which is literally like a theme that is like (laughs) huge in sci-fi like i cannot believe that they named that um and like we get like oh okay so he values life because he cares about that more than the spice cool and then like As soon as the fight happens, um, like, you know, as soon as, like, House Atreides is, like, uh, decimated, the movie just fucking goes. And it is so fucking quick. Like, I remember even as a kid being like, I want to know more about Chani. I want to know more about the the Freeman. Like, because, like, obviously the, the Fremen are incredibly technologically advanced in order to create a lot of these things that they do right the still suits themselves right they have these giant lakes of water underneath the surface they have hundreds of thousands of people like living under like essentially like the entire population of earth living underground and still surviving and still you know like Um, which we get into more, I think, in the next one. But, like, you see that they have, like, factories and, or like, you know, and technological capabilities that have just been fucking completely hidden from the Imperium, which is so, so, so cool. I want to know more about that. And that's why I'm really excited for the next Dude movie because I feel like we only got, like, 30 minutes of that in this movie and it was all just point A to point B because we had to go on this journey with Paul. Yeah. Um, I, I want to come back to the Freeman, but um, uh, we had to go on this journey with Paul, right, where he has to like um, where the spice kind of like awakens him. And then he like starts to like question the relationship between the spice and the worm. And then he like takes the water of life. And then all of the Bene Gesserit in the entire like universe start crying blood, which is sick as fuck. So cool. And he like takes a new name. Um one of the things that I wrote about for my sci-fi class was how Dune itself is like a thought piece on uh, gender and gender expression and gender norms and the violence that exists within the binary. And until we uh, collectively move past that, we will all be oppressed by different systems and by ourselves and by um, by just like literally the entire societal structure in the world. And so because, you know, we've already talked about how the Bene Gesserit literally like are patriarchal, even though they are matriarchal, supposedly. And then we see 
all of these different portraits of masculinity through House Atreides and through the Harkonnens and through the Imperium and and all of that. Um, it's also really interesting how everybody uses sound, right? So men use sound as a literal weapon. Um, you know, they, they use words as a weapon to destroy their enemies, whereas women use it to control their enemies. So thinking about language and how that works within like the different gender norms, right? Like when men complain about women, it's usually because like, oh, well, she tells me what to do and she does this and she does this. And then like men, like how often does like the words that they use, like because in, in this uh, story, they say that it like it has a shape. Right. And so when you use a violent word, it inflicts violence. Right. Um, but it's not until Paul uh, essentially like gives up he because he's already kind of on that journey where he is walking in both worlds he's learning from his father and from the men and secretly learning the ways of of women through his mother and as he begins to embrace more of of his feminine side right of like of all of that he's able to become the messiah he literally could not become that unless he had you know learned how to use the weirding way and how to use the voice and taken the life of water and he even like goes so far as to like take a name like by calling him at a certain point in the story by calling him paul you are dead naming him yeah. you know and that's what i really 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 love about dune and that's what i really hope that they explore in the next movie because i feel like there's so much substance there and that's honestly why i want to read the book so bad because I love seeing these different gender binaries and what they look like and the harm that they cause and inflict on the world and on themselves and how the only way to like get past that and to reach your full potential and to stop all of this violence and everything is just to like get rid of the binary and embrace the fluidity of gender and like everything. Well, you could argue the fluidity of life. I mean, <laughs> from the, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Well, in the Kwisatz Haderach, like that ability is to tap into the genetic memory of both men and women. Oh shit! Yeah. Really? And pre and presumably, you know, non-binary people as well in your family. But Fucking they incredible. so being the Jessica is the Reverend becomes Reverend Mother of the Fremen, and Paul becomes the Kwisatz Haderach. So they have this genetic memory, and you know, we see that with Aaliyah, who is this bizarre creature at the end but only because she has this you know potentially billions of years of genetic memory downloaded inside of her directly it's honestly iconic from, <laughs> the, so from the womb and so they it is this pulling of both male female and then it, there is a kind of this obvious binary to the the gender binary to the book but um I think you're right where it is pulling it is kind of both breaking the binary but kind of like using these both genders i suppose but yeah i think it's like like just bringing that up as a conversation i think the movie and the story itself from what at least what, what i've seen is interesting because it can be both things at the same time and discuss both things both in their positive and negative attributes at the same time in the same way that like Paul's journey, the hero's journey within this story, is it a self-fulfilling prophecy? Is it true? Is it not? It's like kind of irrelevant because they both are true, but his journey and the emotion and like the experience behind it and the growth that comes from it is still real nonetheless. So like seeing that at the same time, I, I just think it's, it is a story that does a great job 
at kind of exploring the complexity of life in the ways that it does or in, in the in the sort of intersectional existing of like both this and that and not just one or the other and in in the way that a lot of stories keep it very binaristic or simple or um basic for the sake of story i feel like i mean it also to that end um has a lot of information it's not like a simple story by any means it's it's huge it's expansive it's incredibly rich and oftentimes very like intentionally misleading just for the sake of like i don't care if at least from what it sounds like within the book um like i don't care if you're following along this is the story so like (laughs) either figure it out or stop reading (laughs) totally and you know when i think about this like this first movie i mean there's just a thing of like paul bringing technology to the Fremen, it's almost like this. There's like kind of a Pocahontas type tale yeah. there that we've seen. It's yeah. definitely a colonialist narrative. That's <laughs> what I wanted to talk more about. I mean, I think yeah. it's just the overall story, both this movie and the next. Obviously, it's the colonialist narrative yes. here. We're like we're supposed to be rooting for this hero. However, it's these two capitalist powers who are feuding over native land that belongs to neither of them and the whole crux of the adventure starts with like the supposed good guys being uh sabotaged by the supposed bad guys and that sets the hero's journey sort of uh, sets the hero on his path um to then be embraced by the native for him to become entrenched in native culture and like it is very Pocahontas, it is it is very white savior. And it is supposed it's to be like white okay savior. because yeah, and, it's yeah. like he's the Messiah. This is prophesied, right? So that's which, like the pass that it gives to itself, which I'm not a fan of. No. And, and I'm also like when you think about too, like House Atreides and where they come from, they come from a land that is like covered in water that has so much sea and has so much green and has so much like so and I think they do a much better job um, kind of talking about that or like illustrating that and the point of the Fremen in the next one but um, in this one it's like okay cool water home and then goes to cool desert home and now I'm your savior and you couldn't do this without me and here I am and it is really it like that aspect of it is incredibly gross it's so it's like it's the biggest part of the story that I struggle getting past mm-hmm. um, just because it really is like it is recontextualizing like a several millennia old Christian ideological story that's already whitewashed like a Middle Eastern hero <laughs> to some degree to this next degree of like, no, let's rewrite the Messiah's story, but literally make him white. Ooh, and make and you're the like, people he's is... helping white. Yes. So, oh, like, well, literally everybody is white in this. It's, it's really bizarre. I mean, it is an interesting story, but, like, at its core, base level, what is happening is real messy and weird. And it's not, like, really addressed as such ever. It's just no. you're not even supposed to question this. This is what this is, and it's fine, and it's 100% good. Which is like, such a strange point of view, just for for its... It's like there's an assumed goodness or an assumed acceptability to the the scenario that we're just placed in that like, yeah, that's not even why would you even look at that? It's about Paul and Paul like being good and being a good guy. And it's like, well, is he <laughs> like, right. that's the you know, yeah. and then there's a 
to me, I, I mean, Eric, I agree. Like I do kind of struggle with that part of it. And then with the Ben and Jesuit vision, people have seen a lot in this because it is problematic, but it's a eugenics experiment of based around a small, like a young white man, like man to yeah. basically become like they've created like the superhuman and it's a white man. And of course, I don't need to describe how problematic that is, but <laughs> but it has that eugenics part of it where yeah. you know, if you are basing all of humanity on a white boy in the desert, like what is the future of humanity going to look like? It's probably going to, I mean, obviously there, you know, when you're thinking about that far, I mean, I guess there's a meta-human, meta-species thing where like we're thinking about humanity in these grand thousands and thousands of year timelines. I get why the movie doesn't touch on like race and stuff. And in that sort of timeline, it's more about humanity, I suppose, rather than like a specific race. But the movie itself, when it, it's committed visually, we see white people there. I In, this, in the Lynch film, I think I saw maybe one black person toward yeah. the end who I specifically was like looking for basically because I'm yeah. like, who, where are they? Yeah. And they some tried degree. to like address some of this in the next movie, which I'm excited yeah. to talk about, but, but I think a lot of it fell flat. Um, yeah. And when we get into the next movie, then. I mean, it's arguably, and I know that most of these are like, it is arguably like a straight remake, just cut in half. So I feel like a lot of the same conversations apart from aesthetic we're going to be having. So if you guys want to like drift on into the next one. It sounds weirdness. like we should just move yeah, on. Let's do it. Should we do yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna... In the year 10,191, the current emperor of the Imperium hatches a plan to get rid of the house of Atreides, who he believes is a threat to his throne by allowing them to take over spice production from the Harkonnens on planet Arrakis. When the Atreides arrive, they are faced with a number of challenges the Harkonnens left for them, including failing equipment and assassins. Luckily, heir to the house Atreides has been training in both physical and verbal combat, thanks to his many trainers and mother, Lady Jessica. Paul accompanies his father to propose an alliance with the leader of the Fremen and tries to learn as much as he can about his new planet while wrestling with the uncomfortable notion that the Fremen believe he is the Kwisatz Haderach. Then, in the middle of the night, the creepy boy Harkonnens come back to commit genocide with the help of the Duke's doctor, as was agreed by the Emperor, and take back Arrakis for themselves. Paul and his mother Jessica are able to escape using the voice, the Bene Gesserit's literal unstoppable power of suggestion, and desperately try to find the indigenous people on this planet called the Fremen. They manage to find the Judge of the Change, Duncan Idaho, and a few Fremen who perish helping them escape the Harkonnens yet again. A plane crash, terrifying desert, giant sandstorm chase, and a duel later, Paul and his mother are embraced by the local Fremen, including the mysterious girl from his dreams, Chani. And so we are at smack halfway in the story, two and a half hour film, this remake that just came out last week or two weeks ago. I do want to open... Um, before we continue the discussion with something that just like really absolutely tickled my heart uh, and my brain and every part of my body. Um, Oscar Isaac, when <laughs> he says to Timothée Chalamet on the uh, cliff, 
He says, if you say no, you'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be, my son. Now, I am going to just run away uh, into the forest because that is so like it's I feel like in a lot of these movies, there is so much like this, like you have to do this. It's your lineage. It's your duty. It's your destiny. That whole trope. And I was expecting that here. I was expecting him to just be like, well, that's why you're here. Uh, And his response is like so beautiful and so like unyieldingly hot. Like it's just like so (laughs) aggressively hot to be so empathetic and like cool just to be like, yeah, if you say no, that's fine. You're forever will be the only thing that I've ever needed to be. And that's my son. And you're like, I'm going to scream. Anyways, I have to say that off the bat because it really sets the tone. Uh, Oscar Isaac, please uh, call me. Let's I mean, this character, who was like a fully realized character in this movie, was so much better. And oh uh, and it's those moments where like he's talking to his son, even when, you know, like Paul doesn't want to like do his fighting stuff or anything. He's like, hey, I need you to hear me. We're in actual literal danger right now. Like this is where we are. And, you know, he like actually shares his thoughts and his counsel with his son and he's like trying to set him up to be successful in life, not necessarily to be the Duke where he's like, sure, like, I hope that you pick that. But like, if you don't like that's super, super fine. I didn't want this. I just this is where I I ended up. And like wherever you end up, you're going to do great. And, you know, I hope that you are happy. Like that's that's literally all he wants for his son. And I'm just like, oh, stop. Stop. I, I love screamed. this. I We yeah. so rarely get to see a good father-son relationship that like that just subverted most like tropes. And I fucking ate it up. And well, Oscar it's Isaac, the just main like, oh. like toxic masculinity bullshit of patriarchal lineage, which is like the big issue with a lot of this shit where he's like, yeah. I love you mm-hmm. regardless. And you're, you see that. And in you're like. like <laughs> and you see that not just in their relationship, but you see that in yeah. every relationship that men have in within House Atreides where they're just like, you know, with Duncan Idaho, right? Where like him and Paul are like best friends. Like Paul is like, this is my confidant. This is my person. This is my boy. Like I, you know, I'm here. And you see like just the nourishment that men are allowed to give to each other and the admiration and it's not like ew gross ew gross get off of me ew feelings gross like in the last one um like paul was not like he didn't feel anything when his dad died he didn't feel anything like at any point we don't see him break down and really like have emotions right he's just kind of like kind of looking off into the future like okay this is happening but like i feel something else right i gotta go ride that fucking worm in this one, we see him break down and get upset with his mom, you know, and get like and have feelings and have joy and have sadness, even if it is like a little bit more reserved. And we also um, the other thing I really love about men in the Atreides house is that they listen. Yeah. And, you know, like, sure, Daddy Atreides is like, you know, like, hey, let's be friends with the Fremen. Right. But it's Paul who like has learned this from his dad, but like takes it a step further and says, no, you're right. We are here on your land. Like that sucks. You know, like he's listening and yes, anding, you know, and not trying to like be advantageous or like strategical about like where in that moment, like where he's trying to head, you know, he's listening and he's saying, 
why wasn't this turned into like a beautiful oasis? Why wasn't this, you know, like, um, like he's questioning all of these things and it's okay. And it's allowed in this. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it's important. I, I guess I see two really important reasons for that. One, I mean, you have in the scene, again, you have a similar scene where you have Paul, he has, you know, a kind of a really strange in the Lynch film, this really strange um, practice fighting scene with a robot kind of thing. <laughs> and then in this, he still has that scene with um, other G- Gurney Halleck. <laughs> yeah, other daddy. Josh Brolin. Um, yes. And he has this fight scene. This is a kid who was born to be in a violent scenario where he would need to protect himself. They have shields. And again, we haven't talked about the shields, but the shields, oh my God, so oh, much yeah. better. In my opinion. I mean, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, those blocky fucking yes, so... brick glass moments were actually really sick. But <laughs> to to be fair, I did love this version of it with like the red and the blue. It was a really nice mechanism that worked. It was yeah. easier to well. follow. But oh yeah. This is a kid who has had who can't be like soft, who can't have his guard down. He's literally going to be assassinated <laughs> when he's yeah. relaxing in one scene in both films. So just the fact that he is able to have like this tender moment with his dad, we don't see that in the first film, but it just, it's such a rarity, you know, in this yeah. person's life where he's literally going to struggle like the rest of the movie. And then two, where being in the house of Atreides, being basically the the prince of the Atreides, they having that emotional intelligence is really key to surviving to like, you know, if you're thinking about someone who is being sent to Arrakis, this new planet with a new people, um, there's a lot, I'm sure on your shoulders where you have to be an emotionally intelligent person. So it seems like really key that they would pass that on to him. And in the last one too, um, we didn't really talk about it, but it felt like, um, like House Atreides, its downfall was it was over trusting and it was um, too kind of like too naive, right? Where it was like, oh, great. Everything is here. We got this. Um, But like ultimately it was undone by just one weak link in, in their, in their chain. Right. Whereas, in this one, and they're, they're like, in the other one aren't like, oh, well, we're going to die. Everything's like, they don't suspect anything, it feels like. They're just kind of like, woohoo, we're, we got a new house. This is great. And in this one, you like right away, everybody knows that this is bad and that something is going to happen. And that is apparent for every fucking character where they're just like, okay, we are in danger right now. The minute that we step on this planet, we are in fucking danger. Something is going to happen. You need to be ready. But they're still also allowing this this time for, you know, tenderness. And, you know, they have their guard up, but like they're still like bringing it down for each other, which I which I like. And it's not they're not ignorant or oblivious like they were in the last one. You know, and it, it feels it feels like at least for the narrative that this this story is trying to present, it feels like a way more realistic way that this supposed savior would act and exist. Like he isn't necess- he's not like intentionally breaking rules, but he is kind of like I'm allowed to just exist and like the embrace of that existence, like at every turn when it's like he's in the suit, they're like, oh, how did you know how to do that? That's like traditional way to wear this. He's like, it just felt intuitive. 
And it just, it doesn't, in the other one, it like, I think it works similarly just with the dialogue, but like all of these small moments. And even when they're like in the helicopter, the dragonfly helicopter in the, in the storm and his intuition is to turn it off and just fly through and go with it. Like, uh, like these moments, it just, it makes way more sense in this movie than it did in the other one, because it is the embracing of, of life and not the structure of, of years and years and millennia of hierarchies and power structures it just he's just allowed to be and they see that and he just is without any ego and And he's not questioned like even when he does that like you know with the um with the grasshopper helicopter his mom doesn't say like what the fuck are you doing oh my god she's just like cool i trust you like no matter what there's there's an inherent trust and a respect that is constantly given to him and that he gives at any turn that is so lovely and i mean you see that love regardless like say with his, him and his father and like him and his mom there's an inherent like understanding that like i can do this and if i can't do this i will ask for help and every person that he's close with even though like most of them perish like they all save his life in one way or another even if they're not there and that's how he's yeah. able to like you know get to where he is at the end of the movie like um like duncan right like he gives him the compass which shows him where to go but more than that like there's a line that duncan says where he says dreams make good stories but everything happens we're awake we have to make it happen um which is really interesting because paul has all of these dream sequences which are really fucking cool but like it's so interesting how they use the dream sequences to foreshadow things that were going to happen and to also like play them out of order so we don't have the full context for them, right? And we don't know what they mean. Or, you know, like I thought that Paul was going to have to die and then like, you know, they were going to bring him back to life or something. But like, no, like that was the death of Paul and the birth of Usul. You know, like the, I forget his name, but the man that he killed, right? He's like, I will show you the ways of the desert, right? And he did. So the subverting of that as a trope, I thought that was so fucking cool and so interesting. And so, yeah, like Duncan saves him by like telling him like, hey, dreams are dreams, you know, but we make this happen. Like you still have to make choices when you're awake. It's not like, even if you think it's like prophetic or whatever, like, it is still you and your actions that decide what will happen. And then Jessica, you know, again, with like the voice and just like giving him life and making, having him be a man instead of a a woman, which whatever. But um, uh, then like learning diplomacy from his dad, you know, learning um, those survival skills from um, Gurney, you know, like we see every single one of those things come into play and, literally like save his life and get him to where he needs to be because he was nourished and was able to be nourished while again just being a kid and just being himself doing what he wants to do and like uh, being allowed to like show feelings and yeah Ugh. right yeah, so i i feel like jessica is quite different in this film you know in yes. the lynch film she's a little bit more i would say melodramatic the whole movie's more melodramatic so it has higher highs <laughs> and lower lows emotionally yeah um it's just all over the place and then about rebecca ferguson as jessica she's much she's a kind of more tightly wound character it seems like she's more quietly intense rather than more outwardly intense she you know i don't think we always see her her arc, I mean, is just almost as, just as big as Paul's. If you think about a character, uh, we don't get to see her complete or either really complete, you know, 
thing in this film because it's just the first part but the the climax of this film obviously is when they meet the Fremen and Paul kills Janus the Fremen warrior who challenges him and at that end I mean Jessica is like the warrior monk who is, you know, taking Javier Bardem down, you know, momentarily to subdue him. <laughs> and I don't love her portrayal in this movie, but Jessica, mm-hmm. I found like generally like an impossible character to portray in film. I just given that like men make movies generally in our in our flawed world. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just don't think Jessica fits any sort of script that anyone would get. Like, but I think, you know, she plays a quietly intense character. I don't think she jumps off the screen in the way that sometimes maybe Jessica maybe would in another film or something, but she, I, I just want her performance interesting. I don't love it, but I definitely don't hate it. I think she had, just a very different character. Yeah, I wasn't, uh, I really honestly wasn't a big fan of this Jessica because coming off of especially the, you know, the first one where she is so strong and even in her moments of weakness, there is strength this one, she felt more timid, much more terrified of everything around her. Um, and to me, it just, um, she didn't feel very confident in herself or in what's happening. And there was just a lot of things like the, it felt like the only choice that she made um, in this whole movie was to have a boy. In the other yeah. one, it felt like her character had so much more agency um, where she's even terrified when her son says like, you know, like, oh, I know you're pregnant. And she's like, oh, my God, you can't. How do you know? Like she's she's so afraid of anybody knowing things or knowing about her. And I think that that's probably part of the conditioning from the Bene Gesserit, probably because we do get like a little bit more of an intense portrayal of them, too. But I don't think that that really serves her like where, you know, the the Messiah myth that, you know, the Bene Gesserit have um, prepared and they they, you know, like are like, OK, whatever. We'll, you know, we'll tell everybody on the planet that the the Messiah is here. And like in that story, it's the mother and the son. Right. You will know by the mother and the son. And she's just a footnote in this movie. It feels like she's just around. She's just there. And. I really, really didn't like the portrayal. I didn't like, um, sure, we got, like, more of, like, her and the Duke, like, talking or whatever. And, we like, did, yeah. one or two tender moments, which is fine. But, like, I feel like we just see a lot of men forget about her where, like, you know, even the Duke is, like, I should have married you. And, like, we find out, like, he's just going for the throne. That's what he wanted, you know, and that's why he didn't marry her. And then, like, even her son, like, I mean, she just she's just kind of around yeah i struggle with her character because i feel like they made her more realistic almost and or believable in this movie where we see her kind of struggle with femininity like she's walking in these crazy shoes that don't make any Mm -hmm. sense out of the out of a spaceship onto a desert it's like okay well you wouldn't wear that obviously (laughs) (laughs) unless you were royal and you know a woman and then we have a scene with her and oscar isaac paul uh the leto's character and she struggles, like they have a relationship issue. And that's not even, I don't even think it's even in the book. It's not in the Lynch film. Yeah. And so like they actually have a relationship. And like, you know, I don't need to tell anyone that relationships don't always work out 
smoothly all the time. <laughs> so them having a fight when they're literally moving to a new planet, I think naturally you would fight in that scenario, right? About like yeah. even how yeah. you're going to decorate your castle or something. But yeah. well, but then, then she like <laughs> supposedly she thought she burst the Messiah, so like I can see why she wouldn't fight him on that. But like even uh, even Paul is like pissed off at her, like oh you made me a freak, like. She just fucking gets it from all angles. And instead of like talking, she just fucking internalizes it and just is afraid of everybody. And maybe that's realistic, kind of like where you would have a 15 year old boy. Don't need that. I don't need that realistic (laughs) bullshit. We're oppressed enough. Like, I mean, I need to see a strong ass woman and I want to see her know what she's doing and be capable and fucking own her shit. That's what I need. Which, yeah. I mean, people people be riding worms and shit. In yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, what's realistic, truly? But... Amen. This is the I year 10,191. Honestly... We still don't have rights? Fuck you. <laughs> That's the hardest part for me is waiting for a worm riding scene in this new iteration. Oh, my God. Also, I, I wanted it so bad. Not and... having that soundtrack. I'm sorry. But that, like, just fucking epic, like, like you know like whatever anything happened god that was really bad sorry my voice is awful right now but like just that fucking epic like guitar comes in and then like the choir and that like you're i like i'm obsessed it's fucking incredible it's so good the the lynch film uh fucking music by toto and then this one is just just normal (laughs) you know just normal music it's fine yeah (laughs) yeah and well and the this movie specifically with its casting does bring race into like the actual like dynamics of dune i mean yeah. we have yeah. we have zendaya's characters split throughout we have the shadow mapes who is the woman who is basically jessica's uh assistant and is also a woman of color um who and then we have kinds her character i mean there are fremen women of color in this m- movie that are all new to the Duneverse <laughs> or, you know. Iconic. And that, you know, I think, you know, I'm really interested in the second movie, how they reconcile, you know, Timothy Chalamet becoming savior of the world. When he's where, still a white dude. <laughs> where, yeah, it's like, is Zendaya? I mean, is Zendaya going to let that happen? I, I don't know. Yeah, literally, <laughs> truly, it's... It's it's going to be a more interesting conversation. And I think, too, going back to what Jessica was saying earlier, the dynamics of the conversation about gender because of the way that it's being presented in this one versus the last one alongside race, I really do wonder at like how they're going to address it. Because a lot of that does come up later, and it's going to be really interesting. Like Because they could possibly just change the expectation completely and rewrite an ending to fit this introductory narrative as kind of like a this version so to speak but like i think it's gonna be cool i don't know i I also watch it be incredibly reductive i know (laughs) it's just like so bad and toxic and completely unnuanced (laughs) well i really like i i feel like they're setting something up cool hopefully because i mean like there are so many like this cast is wonderfully diverse um and it's still Timothy is like is Paul who a fucking white man right who is leading all of these characters of color and you know outlasting and outliving and all of this so like I like that they're that Paul is questioning himself 
in this, right? I like that that is an aspect that is happening where he is doubting that he is the one. He's doubting himself, like, you know, and I hope that as he comes into like, sure, maybe I am this person, but what does that mean? Like, and what does that look like? I hope that we get a different version of a Messiah that we like, maybe sure, like this person helps to teach people how to fight or has like some sort of support role in empowering the people to rise up and take power for themselves or, but it's not done in like a gross, I mean, even just talking about it, it sounds gross, but like, I hope that there's a better way to do that. And I I wonder if part of them having Paul question himself so much and so fundamentally is um, is a part of that, I hope. Yeah, and I think they've at least laid a foundation of like having, I mean, he will have, just from what we've seen from the Fremen so far, we've only seen a handful of characters, but I mean, Stilgar, Javier Bardem will be there, Zendaya will be there. Um, there will be at least like a diverse cast around him i mean and we're going to see a potentially hundreds thousands more fremen who knows i'm just i'm just hoping yeah i totally agree i'm hoping that there is going to be this more less maybe less focused just on timothy more egalitarian vision for the ending um and and it's just it could be very different just because obviously with the ending of the lynch film it goes bananas and it could <laughs> and maybe it's that's because of timing um and i think this one movie is just as long as the lynch film yes yeah both like two and a half hours or something so yeah. obviously there were a lot of cuts in the lynch film if like you know as far as what you can fit but so hopefully they, they're giving themselves all the room and all the foundation they need to do something that's not like completely toxic yeah, yeah. i and really did- hope so how did the book end? Was it close at all to the Lynch film? The Lynch film, I will say, is very true to the book in tone and general plot overline. Okay. But for a few, I mean, there's, I could talk about different examples, but like the sound weapons and stuff are not in the book. Um, yeah, because those aren't in this either. <laughs> like um, no. the. I you think having a giant worm would be enough to beat the hurricane? <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> Not like shooting guns on top of it. But, like going um, pew, pew, yeah. and like, like literally like, having that, like, try to break this rock. Try to break this rock. Break. <laughs> oh, so but, stupid. And then he's like, break, and it breaks, and they're like, ha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, t- the tone, I think, is truly where the Lynch film kind of like shines, even if it is all, all over the place, because yeah. the book itself can't, it has a very almost like stage um Shakespearean quality to it where mm-hmm. it can almost be performed on the stage there's you know there's elements of soliloquy there's sort of clown-esque characters the shadow mapes character is is great in the book and is much more of a slapstick character who is funny um <laughs> and there's you know obviously at the end Leah is so funny and she's very rude and child like comic almost i think she's very funny in the books so like i think the lynch film was very, it took like tonally things from the book that were true at least in my experience reading it and then this new movie is a little bit more it, it, it new territory as far as tone goes and i think it brings dune into much more of a modern experience and you know as we've been talking about i think like the jessica character is key to that um i don't think there's as much like myth making and stuff um Mm -hmm. i think like even the soundtrack kind of sets it in a more real place it's pulling more from the middle eastern 
obvious influences, making those more known, I think. There's yeah. Even, and I, cause they just don't touch on that at all in the Lynch film. Um, and I'm like, well, we're saying a bunch of words that are <laughs> that are in Arabic. And I will say, just take this quick shout out that in this movie, we do see a Muad'Dib, but we do see the mouse, the sweat, as, as, as Eric Caballero said, a sweaty mouse. A sweaty mouse. <laughs> a sweaty little mouse. Who I will say canonically, I mean, it's just like, is so perfect as a you know metaphor for everything in that Paul does and then... as a sweaty little mouse <laughs> running through the desert trying not to die. Yeah, because I, I mean that's, that's Timothy, how... right? That's just the actor. Timothy that that's so meta. <laughs> what was cool that I really liked? Um, I loved how fluid language was in this film, like where they would go yeah. from speaking one language to the next it's, to like using oh, yeah. sign language. It was as, like, like sign to French to incredible. English to like just intermittently like it, it and for the sake of like not just like safety but like it just it like what a skill like in that moment when they're like if they're in a space where they can't speak they can sign but then she like signs quickly like he may no sign and you're like oh okay shit how mm-hmm. do we it's just what an interesting thing that not a lot of movies do like and just, I, I just like that conversation that exploration was i wonder if part of that too because like i feel like in the lynch film um jessica and um and paul felt more like a package they were like buddies they were together they were so good at playing off of each other and knowing each other's steps and just like right there next to each other the entire time and i fucking loved that um in this one, they feel really like separate and like separate entities, but like this is the only way that they really like communicate like to- together where it's like, oh, they're on the same page. Um, so I wonder if part of it was to like be like, oh, yeah, we they need that connection. Like here, let's do that, you know, because yeah. they just watered down both characters a little bit. But totally. And I think they make him more of a teen. Like, he feels <laughs> a little bit less of a like a you know, full like 35 year old. And, yeah. <laughs> and True. he, yeah. if you think about how, especially the first scene where he's kind of just like, mom, let me like eat my cereal or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally. Like I am 15. I am like a billionaire, like Royal person. Let me just eat my cereal. And yeah, I think he's, he has those moments where I think it just feels a little bit more like, yeah, real character. Well, like, and not even, just, yeah. Even when they're in the tent together, like there's a little bit of that, like, what do we do angst but also like everything's gone but it's still very much like a kind of awkward teen and his distressed mom like what do we say like i don't i, I, I he's dead okay I, I, what do we do <laughs> you're like okay yeah that yeah just yell at each other if we yell at each other this is how we communicate our feelings yeah I just like you, you get to dwell on some of those more visual metaphors and um, you know something like that. I mean, they're just the visuals too. We can talk about that too. Where and I, you know, maybe we want to talk like, talk something about like Blade Runner twenty forty nine and how that changed Blade Runner because it is yes. really kind of similar as far as like having an original artistic vision for this classic science fiction film. But there were just very subtle different viewing experience completely oh yeah i mean that i feel like that's where um what is the director's name sorry yes. uh, dennis villeneuve <laughs> yes Vill- villeneuve. who was very pissed that this wasn't coming exclusively to the the big screen he's like 
you cannot experience this. Like he, he, he did you hear all that? He got like real messy. Okay, Christopher for Nolan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Calm down. No, I'm just kidding. But I mean, really, it's just like, you can't, whatever. My favorite, okay, this is besides the point and I will come back. One of my favorite tweets ever is from, do you know Iowa Debris? Mm-mm. Okay, so she's she's a comedian. She's very funny. She's been in a bunch of stuff. She replaced actually um, Jenny Slate in Big Mouth. She was the actor who replaced okay. her. Um, anyways, when that was all happening, she tweeted, "Oh my god, just saw Tenant on my iPad Mini. So good. It's so <laughs> it, it's like it's one of my favorite jokes. Anyways, I think about it all the time. I owe every year. Genius. I love you. So funny. Um, but going back to this, this is I feel like. The second thing I've I've notably seen from this director, and he is so good at taking existing IP, reimagining it, but having it still feel of world and of story uh, in such a beautiful way and finding the humanity in these big, wild, futuristic sci-fi mm-hmm. stories. Like finding the nuance of, of emotion, of character, of distress, of angst, in the little things and in the lineage and in the longing looks and the, in the wording and the embrace and the breath. Like I feel like he's so good at the nuance within these big stories. And he just, it, he shines. I mean, 2049, for example, like that whole opening sequence with Dave Batista, like to set the mood was like, this is fucking Blade Runner. That's insane. Like how sick. And similarly with this, like I just, I feel like we're getting, He's just really good. He's just like he's like a really good director, and it's, I I I literally cannot wait because I do think this was such a good stage set piece, like just kind of making the table, and the feast is yet to come. And when it does, I think it's gonna be incredible. Hopefully, uh, I oh, I, I think, truly I can't wait. I cannot wait for the sequel. Now it's gonna be so sick. I think that they are absolutely going to do children of dune after this and just continue doing i would love for them to just to continue to do dune because like i feel like there is a lot here and i just yeah. i mean i feel like it is a really gorgeous film and you know for all my my gripes with it i think you know um i think you're right where he's really good at like uh, reimagining IPs, which is incredible, which is something that most people can't do, um, especially for like sci-fi when <sighs> like you know, yeah, sci-fi is just like already like really difficult to um, to reimagine and just like doing it so well and so elegantly and so eloquently, um, and just having like such nuanced characters too, and so like so much to say, and he's you know so good at subverting tropes, you oh, know, yeah. with like. I mean, the end of 2049 where we're like, oh, he's the one. Wait, no, he's not the one. Okay. So that's what gives me hope that like this isn't going to be that gross savior story that we, you know, that we're expecting. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I think that's going back to Jessica. I think that's probably why, like, because all of the characters that he, you know, that he directs are very flawed and very like nobody is really strong. So like that, that does track. And I didn't think about that just being his directing style, but like, yeah, come on. I mean, <laughs> literally in an age of nostalgia driven reboots, it's kind of nice to have somebody who does something interesting instead of just like a plug and chug new actor same story situation just it's nice yeah. to have somebody with vision taking a swing at a beloved property that has such a fan base and has such a a history something Especially as big sci-fi, as sci-fi and so, which yeah, exactly. sci-fi can be like so hit or miss and um always a big budget like yeah. almost no matter what you know yeah. 
I um, feel like his vision for the second book, if I'm just like going to guess, I think. Yeah, like let's big, do it. Big guesses. <laughs> I just feel like with big themes of this book, I mean, faith is, is a really underdeveloped theme in this when you literally are making the god of, of the future. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think faith is something that they bring up enough, but it's something that, you know, is still extremely relevant in all of our lives yeah. um, I and, mean for, for a movie that's technically the New Testament in space yeah so I think he's going to have this push and pull with like yeah. is is Paul actually the Quetzal's Haderach and it's not going to necessarily be like drink the water of life blue eyes white savior like, <laughs> blue eyes well, white savior <laughs> Yugi. oh my god Yugi he holds out his card. card yeah blue eyes white savior Oh and my God. I just think he's going to make it a little bit more like, is he or isn't he? Because I think even with Blade Runner, where it's like, you know, like it's the original, there's this thing, yeah. whole thing with like Harrison Ford. Is he a replicant? Is he a human? And I think there's kind of maybe that similar push and pull of like, you know, you can see what you want to see. You can, you know, you can see, you know, two different or several different types of endings in this. And, you know, maybe that does involve you know if they if they're actually going to do a, another sequel or something when he's yeah. clearly you know going to have to be some sort of giant desert god but <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah i mean um, like so, they yeah. could even make it like his sister right like what if alia is the one and you know oscar isaac is I not mean, white honest... what if she's like not a white presenting baby literally give it to her because she's <laughs> already so sick and i fuck and like the the prophecy is like you know, it turns out that it was mis- that like the the mother and the son will bring, you know, will bring forth the baby. And then like, I, I don't know, but, but like doing something. So it's not Timothy Chalamet. I have faith after yeah. thinking about 2049. I have faith. I, I think it's going to be fucking sick. So that answers the question on what they're doing. <laughs> Did you see the the Joey like how you doing? How you doing? Yeah, <laughs> I got it. All of the Dune memes have been so funny, incredible. Um, okay. Should we Let's, take it to the outro? Let's do the outro. So we're back. Um, we made it back from Arrakis. Um, Eric. Yes. Lafibri. Yes. Who was this for? This was for. Honestly, it was for David Lynch. It felt like it was very much for him to just kind of like get in there and play. And then it kind of went awry, which is why I feel like he's like, hey, I don't really want this. I don't really claim this anymore. But it did feel like a fun little embellishment for him. Who do you think it was for? Other Eric. Eric. Wow. It's there's so many Eric's. Oh, my goodness. You could could (laughs) say he's the best. You could say he's the best one. I mean, I I feel like this was for political science majors. Hi. It was for supply chain management people. <laughs> <laughs> it was for theologians. Uh, uh, really, there's it's really for everybody, I think. <laughs> yeah, I agree with both of you. So I am going to say I think it was for Toto because oh. that fucking theme, that... Like, how fucking fun to write that. Like, if you, like, we're both musicians, right, Eric? So, like, if somebody is like, hey, we want you to score this, and, like, the sky's the fucking limit, like, and we just want rock ballads, like, how much fun would that be? Oh, it would be so sick. (laughs) 
think that would be so fun. Um, Lefebvre. Yes. Did you like this movie? I did. I thought it was cool. Um, yeah, I liked it. I liked it like a f- solid like. Just an even keel across the board liked it. Mm-hmm. How about you, better Eric? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely like this film. Uh, definitely not. I mean, I just there's a lot of to criticize because it's such a big movie, but definitely like. Yeah. I love this movie. I, I really, I mean, we talked about why it's all, you know, it's got these problematic things and, um, you know, I recognize that, but I still really, really, really love it because um, it's so nostalgic for me. And also, I just really love, um, I had a great time writing that fucking paper and I love uh, just I love everything that I talked about already. And <laughs> I think it's um I think it's really fun and really interesting to talk about like the gender dynamics and and also just it's a fun movie to be critical about too because like it's such oh, yeah. a it's such a big movie that everybody has an op- you can't watch this movie and not have an opinion about it. And it does have its more gross moments and I will, you know, ignore those whenever it comes on screen or just be very critical of them. But, um, but yeah, I think overall, um, I really still love this movie. Yeah. What about the 2021 version? Uh, Mr. Lefebvre, is it new, interesting or the same or is it progressive regressive? Um, I think it's new and interesting. Um, just in the way that it's like spending a little bit more time with the characters. It has more room to breathe. I think it's progressive in a lot of the ways it's trying to approach the conversation of colonization, also just in the general inclusion of non-white people. I think that that's like a huge step forward, especially in an allegory about colonizing the Middle East, arguably. Um, I think I think it has a lot more to say. And I, I feel like I say that all with a big like asterisk because I do want to finish the story. So as it stands now, that's how I feel. I want to know the rest of it to really qualify that opinion. I think it's evolved with today's ideals in the very same way. What do you think best? I think it was jarring being a book fan and having read the book beforehand and having a really elegant viewing experience where the first film is just not, I would say elegant. (laughs) (laughs) This is, this is such a mature movie but I think, I mean, I think kids might enjoy it too because it's visually interesting. But it's just firing on all cylinders as far as like a modern, elegant film. And, you know, given that it is being released in, you know, you know, still in the pandemic and everything. And I saw it, you know, in uh, on my TV. It was still like a great, like kind of re- almost return to cinema a bit for me. So mm-hmm. I just thought it was... I got a lot out of viewing it. I've seen it twice in like a week span. So <laughs> I, um, it was really exciting. I think it was just exactly kind of what I needed. So I'll say it's very good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I also watched it two times within a week. So, um, and there are things on the second watch that I did pick up that I did not on the first watch, which is very uh, cool. I thought that it was definitely new and interesting, maybe a little bit, um, it's a different pace for sure. Um, where, you know, you were just talking about how it's, um, it's a different vibe to the entire movie, right? So it does feel a little bit 
it, it is a little bit slower. So that was a little bit jarring coming straight off of the uh, the first one. Um, but I do think that it was progressive in all the ways that you guys already mentioned, where it's like, um, we have a more inclusive cast, especially when we're talking about, you know, colonization and everything. Um, I think that I have to withhold judgment on like, you know, uh, all of that, like big asterisk, because we only do have half of the story. Um, so I can't form a full opinion on it because we don't know how that ends. And, you know, it's being set up as one thing. And if it if it pans out that it's the white savior thing, then I am going to say that it's regressive, you know. But I mean, we we don't know yet. So we'll see. We'll yeah. see. But we'll I do see. think it was um, it was a delight to watch just because it was such a beautiful movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is we'll check we'll check back in two years and see how we're all feeling two years which <laughs> oh my god they're gonna make that movie in two years that's oh like, i don't i is it i'm i'm yeah maybe oh, 2023 okay, yeah. is when it's gonna come oh, out and that feels too yeah. fast because they're they're gonna have to rebuild all those sets and everything um because they didn't film them back to back so i mean we'll see i mean they've got the budget <laughs> i mean now they do they've got yeah. the budget of budgets for this film <laughs> Um, Eric, who do you think yes. it was for? It is exclusively for Tel- Timothée Chalamet's career. This is his Star Wars moment. It's launching him as if Lady Bird and Call Me By Your Name didn't already set him into the trajectory of a uh, rich, wealthy, white male actor. Uh, this is the this is the ticket. He is the lead. He is Paul. He is there. This is that's congrats congrats to that man way to go way to go how about you best i I have to call you guys by your last name and this feels very weird because i'm usually like a first name person so i'm sorry it's so funny every time we hang out to it because eric's gonna come visit next week and three eric's the the eric's like it's always it's it's always a treat i know i call you california eric yeah (laughs) and then air chicago eric Eric. Um, I think this movie is for people, but especially queer men who love daddies. Ooh. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> because there are a lot yes. of daddies and there are have never been fewer homophobic stereotypes yeah. in, this, in, in a Dune film. So yes. we're, we are, the, you know, queer men hive, daddy hive is, is buzzing. <laughs> <It's> buzzing. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, we got naked, naked Oscar Isaac. Oh my uh, god! <laughs> oh, that's and right. Yeah. Jason Momoa, Javier Bardem. I, I mean, it's, I it's also people it's, who like twinks. People who like twinks are living too. Yeah. Congrats to the twink community. Um, shout out uh, for your king. Um, <laughs> he is he's really doing doing it. Um, congrats. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think this movie was by and large for men, um, <laughs> both, yeah. both queer and straight men, because yeah. I feel like it was also um, showing just men in general that you can, you know, be cool with each other and show emotion and be stoked around each other and be nourishing, right? Like, uh, can you imagine, like, growing up with a dad that was just as like compassionate and understanding as oscar isaac like i, I mean uh <sighs> daddy duke like come on it's I just that's need also him to real me. hot guys if you if i, I mean it's it's the it's hottest, the hottest thing. thing it's crazy and oscar isaac if for whatever reason you're listening to this 
if we ever meet in person, if you tell me the words, I'm proud of you, I will both cry and cry more. Um, <laughs> I just, it's, 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 I, I don't even know how to, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's what'll mm-hmm, happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Lefebvre, did you like it? I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I'm so excited for the next one. Um, yeah, I loved it. I'm obsessed with it. I'm going to rewatch it. It's so good. <laughs> how about you, Best? Uh, definitely like the movie. Um, I wonder how it's even going to do an award season, honestly. I don't know if performances will be awarded, but mm. um, it's definitely going to be winning for a lot of editing, a lot of sound, a lot yeah. of design yeah. stuff. So I think it, it's going to get its due. Or mm. Dune. It's Dune. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, big thumbs up for me. Even if it was very jarring from a book person perspective yeah (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i i liked it i liked it a lot did i like it as much as um i like the original um again i'm gonna have to withhold judgment because i don't know how it ends and um even though it was jarring it was great i i enjoyed it i enjoyed it on a second watch it didn't feel like 84 hours long which is great so yeah I think that's the end of our show. I think that's um, it. Eric, thank you so much for joining us here on a uh, a weeknight to <laughs> chit chat about the world of Dune. Thank you so much to you two for having me and like a great discussion. I would pay people to talk to, about Dune at them. So. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll actually text you our venue. Oh. Um, oh, speaking, speaking of, <laughs> oh, okay, uh, okay. just. In case you, I mean, you presented it. I just didn't want it. I didn't right. want it to be awkward. Right. Um. <laughs> um. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been so great. I had such a good time. Yeah, this has been totally. a treat. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. Uh, don't and, forget to rate and review us. Oh, follow us on social media. What am I saying? Yes, follow <laughs> us on social media. Um. Yeah. Our artwork and music is by Eric Lefebvre. Editing is by Danny Barkley. And uh, thanks again to both of you, Eric Best and Eric Lefebvre. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> and remember, stay cute. And stay critical. Bye. Goodbye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Nostalgia Network. Visit the NostalgiaNetwork.com for more. You enter the dungeon and see the evil wizard pointing his wand directly at you. He says, Show me a funny and delightful actual play Dungeons and Dragons podcast, or I'll consume your souls! What do you do? I take out my phone and find Quest Friends Forever on Spotify. I show him how to find Quest Friends Forever on Apple Podcasts. I share the Quest Friends Forever Instagram and YouTube pages with him. And you all get critical hits! Yay! Quest Friends Forever is an actual play podcast starring four friends with varying levels of Dungeons & Dragons experience. Join us for new episodes every other Wednesday as we embark on fantasy adventures, play fast and loose with the rules, and laugh at each other's shenanigans. No prior D&D knowledge is required to listen, so everyone can feel free to join the fun. Quest Friends 4, that's the number 4, like how there's four of us, ever. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's Quest Friends Forever.